My name is Dan. I'm the children's pastor here at Great Oaks Community Church. If this is your first week here, we are in the middle of a series called The Story. The Story is taking us, it's a 31-week it's a series. And it is taking us from the beginning of the Bible in, in the book of Genesis, taking us to the end of the book of Revelation. And uh, it is basically helping us put, put uh, or helping us understand how the Bible is all put together. All right. Today we are on, uh, on week 21. All right. Um, this is the last Sunday in the Old Testament. So I thought it would be fun to give you a little review to see where we've been for 21 weeks. All right. Um, instead of me just sitting up here and just regurgitating it all to you for a minute or two, I thought we'd take a pop quiz. That's what your teachers want to do when they want to make sure you've been listening. They threaten you with a pop quiz. And we're going to take a pop quiz this morning. So in your bulletin, there's an insert. On one side it says uh, uh, the sermon notes. And on the back it says the story quiz. This is how the quiz is going to work. I'm going to give you about one minute. That's not very long. But this is what I want you to do. I've chosen ten of the major stories that we've covered in the past 21 weeks. And I've mixed them all up. Okay, so I want you to go through and to put them all in order. All right. Is uh, starting number one with the first thing and ten with the last thing. I'm not going to lie. It's not going to be easy to do in 60 seconds. All right. So I have given you half the answers. All right. It's still not going to be easy to do under pressure in 60 seconds. Some of you have just come this week or the recent weeks. You probably aren't going to be able to do this. Maybe you will. I hope so. But I'm, I'm not expecting that. And friends, some of you are the type people. Where like, as you were growing up, like if you missed one question on a test, you went home crying, and it ruined your week, right? It's just a terrible, I can't miss a question. Don't be that way. All right. If you mess up, it's okay. All right. This is just a fun way to review. All right. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds. If you have a pen, if you have these, go ahead and kind of work them out together. All right. Or, or I just go ahead and put them in order. Okay. Go ahead and begin. All right, time's up. All right, so I'm going to give you the answers, and uh, we're going to kind of give you a very brief review of, as to where we've been as we finish up our final week in the Old Testament. Number one is, you know what? It's so fun to be the teacher. You know, you always think teachers are so smart. They're not smart. They just have the answers in front of them. That's all it comes down to. All right. Uh, the, first, the first one is God created mankind. This is not an accident, right? This is a kind of freak accident. God created all of us. Number two, man sinned against God. 
All right? Uh, of course, that's Adam and Eve. They chose to eat from the... Well, they chose to eat from the fruit of the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. They brought sin into the world. Number three is that Abraham moves to Canaan. All right, so God spoke to Abraham. He told him to go to a place that he was going to show him. He packed up his things and he left. Number four, Joseph becomes deputy pharaoh of Egypt. Again, this is spanning a couple thousand years here so far, right? So I'm not getting all the major events here. I'm just going through some of them. Uh, Joseph, Joseph becomes deputy pharaoh of Egypt. Number five, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. All right, so the Israelites became slaves in Egypt. There's Moses, and he leads them out of the slavery. And then they go to the wilderness. And number six is Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. And then after, after that, we begin... Uh, uh, after that, the Bible teaches us about the judges and, and uh, the way they ruled Israel. And then number seven is Saul, David, and Solomon become kings. And number eight, the kingdom is torn in two. So we have Israel in the north. You have Judah in the south. Okay, so then Assyria comes. They capture Israel. They disperse them, and we really never hear from them again. Okay, and then there's Judah in the south. And then uh, Judah gets captured by Babylon, and they go into exile for 70 years. And that brings us to number 10. The return to Jerusalem and the temple walls and the temple and the walls are rebuilt. And that brings us to today, the story of Nehemiah. Um, so Nehemiah is back in Persia, okay, because at this time now, Babylon has been captured by Persia. And, uh, Uh, the king of Persia, prior to Nehemiah, gives the Jews permission to go back to Jerusalem. Okay. So, uh, about 80 years before, it was about 80 years before Nehemiah goes back, uh, various groups of Jews had gone back. There have been two other groupings of Jews that go back. Okay. So now Nehemiah is standing before the king, and he asked the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem. And they also asked the king to give him the resources he needs to go back to Jerusalem so that he can rebuild the walls. Now, why did Nehemiah want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem? First off, it's important for us to remember that when Babylon captured the Jews and they tore down Jerusalem, that's exactly what they did. They destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They tore down their temple. They burned the gates. They completely destroyed Jerusalem. All right. So here's Nehemiah, and he's going to go back, and he's going to lead the rebuilding of the walls that surround Jerusalem. Why does he want to do that? Well, he wants to do that, not just because he's heard all these cool stories about Jerusalem, all right? He doesn't want to go tour Jerusalem, and not just because his, ancestor, it's not just because his ancestors are, are buried there in Jerusalem. It's because of this reason. It's because Nehemiah understood that Jerusalem is the core of the religious and the cultural center for the Jews. Okay? So there's Jerusalem. It's laying in complete ruins. It's a disaster. It's, it's shameful. Because for centuries before Nehemiah, these Jews had been... Uh, worshiping the one true living God, okay? 
the God who made heaven and the God who made earth. And the nations around Jerusalem and the nations around Judah, they came to understand this. That the Jews claimed to worship the true living God. So now we have Jerusalem and the Jews have gone back and they've rebuilt the temple. But there's no walls. And that's just disgraceful back then. There's nothing to give it an identity. There's nothing to, to, to protect it from the enemies. All right. Back then, that would have been just a shameful, disgraceful thing. So now all these nations that surround Jerusalem have got to be thinking, well, what kind of God is that? He can't even provide his people with enough strength to rebuild their own walls. What kind of God are they worshiping? Right? It was disgraceful. Well, Nehemiah wasn't going to have any of that. So Nehemiah goes back to rebuild these walls. Nehemiah didn't know it at the time. But he had a very Christ-centered purpose. All right? Which was 400 years before Jesus comes to earth. He had a very Christ-centered purpose because God knew that in about 400 years he was going to send his son into the world. God knew that the city of Jerusalem was going to be pivotal in the events that surround Jesus' life. It was going to be in Jerusalem that Jesus would do many of his miracles. He would stand trial. He would be condemned to death, carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, and to go up on a hill just outside of Jerusalem and die for the sins of man. God needed those walls rebuilt of what was going to happen well into the future. Nehemiah didn't know it, but he had a very Christ-centered purpose. Now, the next 400 years, in the course of Jerusalem's existence between Nehemiah and Jesus, uh, there was a lot of turmoil, okay? It wasn't all roses. They had a lot of ups and downs. But this was the start for them to regain their identity and to become a place of worship for the Jews. It was pivotal. Friends, you and I, if we have come to the point where we understand that God loves us so much that He gave His Son to die on the cross for our sins, and He rose from the dead, and we've confessed our sins to Him and given our life over to Him, God has given us a purpose. It's the same purpose. To worship and proclaim the name of Jesus to our world. Now how that looks for each one of us is going to be different. Uh, Depends on how God made you. What your talents are. What your gifts are. What your history is. What your circumstances are. It's going to look different for each one of us. But ultimately we all have the same purpose as Christ's followers. To worship Jesus and proclaim his name to the world. This morning, as we look at the life of Nehemiah, I want to point out to you three qualities that I found in his life that made him successful as he fulfilled God's purpose for his life. All right. The reason I want to do that is because I want us to look at those things that was in Nehemiah's life and to see if they are in our life. I think it's critical that they be in our life. If we are to fulfill God's purpose of proclaiming the name of Jesus to our world. All right. So let's get started. Open up to the book of Nehemiah. 
like for you to follow along as I read the first four verses in chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kisle, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let's pay close attention to the last verse. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. There's Nehemiah. He's talking to his brother who had just come back from Jerusalem. He asked him how Jerusalem's doing. Gives him a terrible report. Nehemiah hears that. He sits down and begins to weep. And he prays. And he fasts for some days, I'm guessing several days. And if we get in those, if we get the sense out of that verse, Nehemiah had a burden. He had a burden, a deep, consuming concern to fulfill his purpose. Right? He had a burden. That's the first point I want to point out today. And it's easy for us as we're sitting here today to say, well, that's great for Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah had that passion, he had that desire, that consuming fire inside that he must go do this, do this thing, fulfill this purpose. He had to do this, right? That's great for Nehemiah. But then for us to say, I don't really have that kind of passion. I don't have that burden, right? I'm going to tell you something about Nehemiah that I found out as I was reading this book. And that's that Nehemiah, throughout the, this book of Nehemiah, prayed ten times. He prayed ten times. Some of those prayers were short, very short. Some of them were longer prayers. But he prayed ten times. As you study the book of Nehemiah, one of the first things that jumps out to you is Nehemiah was a man of prayer. A man of deep, deep prayer. He naturally prayed. He was praying as he did all these things in the, in the story. He was a man of prayer. And at first as I was reading, I was thinking, well, Nehemiah prayed because he had such a burden. He had such a, a concern. It forced him to his knees to pray because he had that burden. And as I was rereading it and studying, I thought, that's not it at all. Nehemiah had a burden because he prayed. Because his prayer life led him to intimacy with God. And he developed a deep burden to fulfill his purpose, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild those walls. Friends, as you and I consider what our purpose is, to worship Jesus and proclaim the name of Jesus to our world, it's got to begin with a burden, with a fire. But I dare say this morning, we won't have that burden 
unless we are people of prayer. People of prayer. In the, back in the late 1800s, there was a pastor. His name was Pastor Bounds, E.M. Bounds. He studied prayer. He was a man of prayer, and he wrote about prayer. He actually wrote nine books on prayer. How you write nine books on prayer? I have no idea. But he did. He wrote nine books on prayer. This is one of the things that he said. And this is true in the year 1900. I think it's more true today as we sit here today. It says, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better. Not new organizations or more and novel methods. But men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer. Men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. Friends, you and I, as we consider how we're going to live out our purpose of worshiping Jesus and proclaiming Him to the world, that burden's got to start with prayer. It's not the other way around. So often we think that prayer is spurred on by something else. I think prayer gives us the burden. The first point I want to make this morning is Nehemiah had a burden that was fueled by prayer. second point I want to make is in chapter 2. Follow along, please, as I begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, well, that's a mouthful, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servants has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Okay, let's stop there. Now think about this. All right. So here's Nehemiah. He is the king's cupbearer. All right. That means that it was his job to taste the wine before the king drank the wine. All right. To make sure it's not poisoned. All right. Kind of a risky job when you think about it. But that was his job. And it was a prestigious job. All right. Because of his proximity to the king. I don't know if Nehemiah lived in the palace with the king. Perhaps, I don't know. Uh, But no doubt he spent a lot of time in the palace at the king's side. All right? The king deeply trusted Nehemiah. I mean, this was a position where the king's life was in Nehemiah's hands. All right? He had a deep trust for Nehemiah, which is interesting considering that Nehemiah was a Jew who was one of the enemies, but that's a different sermon. A deep trust for Nehemiah. And here's Nehemiah. And this position that he had probably afforded him a lot of comfort. A lot of uh, earthly pleasures. 
Alright? As the king's cupbearer. And now Nehemiah hears that the walls around Jerusalem are still not rebuilt. That the gates are burned down. And he goes to the king and he asks the king for permission to go back to rebuild the walls. Think about what Nehemiah is doing. He had the job everybody wants. He's living in luxury. He's got authority just by being the king's in the king's presence. No doubt, he's looked at as, man, Nehemiah's got it made. He's got it made. And now Nehemiah goes to the king and he's asking to leave it all. To go hang out with a bunch of former slaves in a city that's just disgraceful and to do a bunch of manual labor. Right? Nehemiah is willing to leave it all. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah to say, let someone else do that. Someone that doesn't have all this going on. right? Someone else can worry about the walls. After all, God's put me here right next to the king, the most powerful man in the world. Right? Persia at this time was the superpower. Right? And Nehemiah is with the king. Let someone else take care of the walls. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He asked permission to leave it all behind, to go build walls. I'll tell you what's interesting. At least I find it interesting is that back when the Jews were given permission to leave, to go back to Jerusalem, only about 50,000 of them returned. Maybe a few thousand more. It's hard to tell for sure. Most scholars believe there was well more than 50,000 Jews who chose to stay in Persia. Now think about that. These people of Nehemiah's day who remained there in Persia, what used to be Babylon, their grandparents and great-grandparents used to live in Jerusalem. The Babylonians came, tore down their walls, took them captive, led them on a four- or five-month journey back to Babylon. And they're terrified. They're terrified. A, because they're leaving their own country. B, because they're going to a foreign kingdom with a king who they don't know I'm sure don't trust and what's even worse is they're going to a land of Babylon with foreign gods false gods and the people in Babylon do despicable things to worship their God and these Jews many of them had not been following God obviously they wouldn't be in the situation but these Jews are leaving everything they knew behind as they're led over to Babylon and they're terrified terrified of being in a land with foreign gods. But they chose to stay. They chose to stay in Persia and they could have gone home. The king says, you are free to leave. Go home if you'd like to go. And they didn't. They stayed in Persia. Does that not strike anyone as a little weird? Right? Why? Because many of them, most of them, I think, had homes. They built homes. They had gardens. They developed trades. Maybe some of them had some kind of 
rustic small business going on, right? They had daily routines. They had a life they had built. And the grandkids and great-grandkids of these one-time captives have got there, and now their approach is, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad living in a land with foreign gods, surrounded by corruption of people doing wicked things to worship foreign gods. It's not that bad. Friends, Peter in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, as he's talking to some of his Christian friends, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and aliens in this world, strangers and aliens in this world, to flee wickedness, which wages war against your souls. Strangers and aliens. Friends, the moment that we, if you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and allowed Him to take control and you're serving Him, the moment that you did that, where you confessed your sins and asked Him to take charge of your life, the moment you did that, your residency changed. You are now a stranger and an alien in this world. You don't belong here. We live here, but this is not our home. Friends, may we never be like the Jews who stayed in Persia. And be comfortable in a foreign land. May things that God describes in His Word as sinful and an abomination to His name ever become something that becomes palatable in our spirits. No matter how many times culture in Hollywood tells us things are acceptable, things are okay now, it's a new day, things are legal, it's all right, everybody's doing it. May they never, may we never begin to believe the lie. May we never look at the sin that Jesus sent His Son into the world to die for, to die for us, to set us free from those sins. May we never look at it and say, it's okay now. They became comfortable in a foreign land. They could have gone home, but they didn't. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah rejected complacency. He rejected the comforts of this world because he had a purpose. Number one, Nehemiah had a burden fueled by prayer. Number two, he rejected complacency in the comforts of this world. He didn't get tied into them. One more point this morning. Out of two different chapters. Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll start reading at the beginning there. When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stone back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us. O oh, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. 
Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But when we prayed to our God, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I'm going to flip over to chapter 6. And I'm going to read just certain pieces of this uh, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Talking about. Nehemiah chapter 6. At the end of verse 2 it says, But they were scheming to harm me. Verse 7 says, They were all trying to frighten us. Verse 12 says, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me, so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Verse 19. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Okay, I think you get the point here. Nehemiah and the Jews rebuilding this wall went through a great deal of persecution. Right? And these enemies who had found out that they were rebuilding the wall tried to intimidate them, discredit Nehemiah, ruin his reputation, frighten him, scare him, even wage a battle against them. Because the devil didn't want the walls to be rebuilt. Friends, as you and I live out our purpose of worshiping Jesus and proclaiming His name to the world, I believe there will be persecution. All right? Which has forced me to ask myself a question in recent days. A question that frankly makes me uncomfortable. Because I've had to ask myself, Dan, Dan, lately, how much persecution have you endured as you've been living out your purpose? I don't really like my answer because as I look in the Bible, uh, it seems that everyone who was following Christ, proclaiming His name, went through a great deal of tribulation. And I don't like my answer because I'm having a hard time identifying with a lot of them in that area. And I don't like to be the only one uncomfortable in this room, so I'll ask you the same question. Lately, if you're a Christ follower, as you're living out your purpose to proclaim the name of Jesus to your world, how much tribulation or persecution have you had? How much persecution have you had to endure? I found an interesting statistic. 
It is done by a, this is done by a reputable organization, a Christian organization called the Center for Study of Global Christianity. And they've done a study. And they found out that every five minutes, somewhere around the world, a Christian is killed because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Every five minutes. That doesn't include people who are in wars or people with some kind of political upheaval. These are people who are directly killed because they have placed their faith in Jesus and are proclaiming it. One, one Christian every five minutes. That's 288 a day. 105,000 every year. People dying to proclaim the name of Jesus. And my answer to my question I asked, I don't really like. I think about brothers and sisters in Christ around the world paying the ultimate price to fulfill their purpose. But friends, as we live out our purpose, more than likely there will be a co-worker a family, a neighbor, someone in our community who's not real excited about the name of Jesus going out. People weren't excited about Nehemiah building that wall. Right? They didn't want the Jews to be able to worship their God again, to have their own designated place of worship again. But as our light shines, people will notice and there will be persecution in different forms. It may not be death, all right? In different forms. And you know what? That's okay. Jesus himself was persecuted, right? And as we read the Bible, almost all of them in some form were persecuted. As we preached and as we Proclaim the name of Jesus to our community. People aren't going to like it. And that's okay. We aren't worried about what they think. Someday we stand before a heavenly father. That is our concern. And to stand before him. And to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That, that is our concern. Three things that we see in Nehemiah's life. That I want to leave with you this morning. One, Nehemiah had a burden fueled by prayer. Number two, Nehemiah rejected complacency. Number three, Nehemiah endured persecution. One final thought, and I'm going to pray for us. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 say this. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. That's a miracle. 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Amen. God had a purpose for them to do, but he didn't leave them to do it by themselves. God helped them do it, and they did it. 
Friends, we've got a God-given purpose to worship Jesus and proclaim His name to our world. And He's not going to let us flounder and make a mess of things. He will help us do it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org. 